This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cigna. Cigna's 2018 Loneliness Index found that most Americans are lonely. However, those who have regular, meaningful, in-person interactions are less likely to be lonely. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, June 13th, the Washington Post convened policymakers, healthcare experts, and advocates who discussed the state of mental health care in the United States, strategies for addressing the country's mental health concerns, and links between technology use and mental well being. In this segment, Mary Giliberti, CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Dr. Joshua Gordon, Director of the National Institute of Mental Health, discuss some of the country's most urgent mental health problems, efforts to reduce mental health disparities, and the latest progress in medicine, research, policy, and funding. Let's listen. Good morning. My name is Amy Alice Nutt. I'm the uh, neuroscience and mental health reporter at the Washington Post. I'm joined here today by Mary Giliberti, the CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. We're going to be talking about some of the more specific and pressing issues in mental health today. Um, and some of these issues, we hope, will generate some answers, or at least avenues to answers, um, but we'll see. Uh, I want to remind the audience that you can tweet questions to post live and um, feel free at any time during this section. So the first question, unfortunately, I'm going to begin with because it's been so much in the news, and that's suicide. Um, not only the very public suicides of um, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, but the very recent, in between those two deaths, the CDC report on suicide in this country with the alarming statistics of the increase in 49 out of 50 states, with Nevada being the one that didn't, but already having a high rate. Um, I wanted to also make a reference to depression uh, and the fact that diagnoses of depression have increased rapidly. and the use of antidepressants has increased some 400% since the 1980s. It would seem that we're doing something wrong. Um, can you, uh, Dr. Gordon, if you'd begin, what, what are we, are we doing something wrong? And what do we need to make sense of those numbers? So first we have to acknowledge that this is a big problem that we are not addressing. Uh, the rates have been going up consistently that's not news. It's not been news since 1999. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's tragic, not only for the individuals who are losing their lives to suicide, but for their families, for the community, and for the country as a whole. We, on the one hand, are doing a lot of things right now. We're talking about it more. Uh, those diagnoses going up, as best as we can tell, that's because people are going to their doctors more. And the prescriptions for antidepressants going up, that's because people are getting better treatment. Mm -hmm. But treatment doesn't always work. 
And when the base rate of depression goes up and other mental illnesses that are associated with suicide, then deaths by suicide will go up as well. What are we doing wrong? Well, I think one of the most telling things was the, uh, in the CDC report that was right. released last week, was the fact that over 50% of those who completed suicide had no known mental health diagnosis. Now we know from years of research that if you go in and, and really look hard at those who have uh, died by suicide, you talk to their family members, you look at their medical records, um, you find evidence for a mental health condition in over 90%. Mm -hmm. So that means to me that it's quite likely that the majority of those, of those who complete suicide in the United States, uh, the, the majority of those 54% have an undiagnosed, untreated mental health condition. And I think that's one of the big things we're doing wrong is we're not discovering these cases. So this area is very personal to me because um, during college I lost a dear friend and sweetmate to suicide um, and she had major depression. And so when I think about this, I think about it in two different ways. One is what we need to be doing as friends, as colleagues of people who have these conditions. And that is don't do what I did, which was say cheer up, look on the bright side, things like that, that were totally unhelpful. What you want to do is really express empathy and say, I'm there for you, I'm here for you, I care about you, and help that person get connected to the right help. The second part of this is that it's difficult to find the right help, to find evidence-based treatments for things like depression, and I think that's an area where we're not doing enough, to make sure people have access to the therapies that we know work. Um, evidence-based therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, different kinds of therapies, and if you also look at the fact that of people who die by suicide, 10% were released from an institutional setting. That could be a psychiatric hospital, a hospital. So there's things we could be doing in follow-up care to make sure that those people have access to the best that we know to make sure we reduce the risk. Right. So I think there's things that we could be doing as the public, um, as colleagues, friends, uh, family members, teachers. I think there's a role for all of us, and we're doing education in schools around that. Um, and then I think there's a role for the mental health system to step up and do better in terms of reducing risk. You, uh, you bring up access, which is frequently noted as being one of the main problems in addressing these mental health issues. More than half the counties in the United States do not have a psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker. So how do we address that problem of getting more professionals and getting them into the right places? So I think there is some data to help guide us. We know that coordinating mental health care and physical health care can really help actually both mental health and physical health. Um, but I think starting with the healthcare practitioners who are in that area, training them but also teaming them up with health professionals is a great idea and has an evidence base behind it. Uh, in the previous conversation, the senators mentioned telehealth, and I think that's another great way to bring mental health care to rural settings. Mm -hmm. And I do think we also have to look at task shifting. Um, that is, having people who aren't traditional mental health professionals play a role. We have lots of evidence that in under-resourced settings, that can work. Mm -hmm. In the United States, though, we have you know, lots of mental health care providers uh, probably not enough 
but we have lots of them, mm -hmm. and getting them to the patients who need it in the places that they, you know, that they live. Um, we can do that with modern technology, and so I think we really ought to give that a try. One of the things um, that I've come across in, with regard to telepsychiatry and telehealth is obviously rural areas, and rural areas that sometimes do not have internet access. So telepsychiatry is not going to work for them. How do we, how do we reach those people in those rural areas? Well, you know, people have telephones. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's one stop, uh, it's one way to do it, but it's a real challenge, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons why you have to look at things like task shifting and training the providers who are in those areas mm -hmm. now. We need to make investments in areas to make sure that we can reach everyone. I think when you talk about the financing, that's something that's important to be thinking about because the shortage of providers, um, at least in some ways, is linked also to the fact that payment rates are not the same in mental health care as physical health care. So there was a study last fall that showed when a psychiatrist and a general practitioner did the exact same thing, same code, the psychiatrist actually got paid less. Mm -hmm. which makes no sense at all. Hospital care, same thing. You see in our hospitals, including rural hospitals, beds being shut down because cardiac care pays more than psychiatric care. So we have a real problem when it comes to financing. We have pilots going on um, in some areas, so something that's called a Certified Community Behavioral Health Center. That's a mouthful, but it's basically like federally qualified health centers for mental health care. And we have pilots going on in eight states, um, including Missouri, so states with rural populations, where these centers are paid like the FQHC, so they're actually paid at cost, mm -hmm. which would seem kind of logical, but in mental health care, our payment systems are anything but logical. Mm -hmm. And early outcomes are good. They're held to high quality standards. In mental health, we have very little quality standards and very little measurement of care. So that's another benefit in these pilots. So that's an area that I think we're making some progress. But we'd like to see that across the country. No more pilots. Just like, let's have everybody have access to well-financed mental health care. Nice shout out. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions about the most seriously mentally ill, which um, these are people that seem to really be caught in the system. And I, I know Mary will address the, the, uh, the paper coming out on, on parity, but I wonder, Dr. Gordon, if you could first address um, inpatient beds. Um, this is a real problem for the most seriously mentally ill. I think we're down to about 11 per 100,000 people in this country. And that's the same number as in 1850. Um, at the same time, these are most seriously mentally ill because there's no community health care, or there's not enough community health care, are going to emergency departments and are being boarded sometimes for days at a time. What do we do, what can we do for the most seriously mentally ill? So we've got a system that is at its breaking point in terms of capacity. Um, I'm not 100% sure, we don't, you know, as a research institution, I, I'm, I'm, I abide by the data. I'm not 100% sure the data would say that inpatient beds is where we need to go. Right. I think uh, if we had better outpatient care, better community mental health centers, right. et cetera, 
we can keep people well in the community. But they need more than that, right? Uh, the best evidence, for example, in first episode psychosis in individuals who are coming down with their first um, you know, serious expression of schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, that coordinated care, looking not just at stopping their psychosis, but also helping them uh, with social issues, helping them with cognitive issues, uh, giving them assistance with a, a vocational help, that a combination of that care leads to the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. So coordinated special care, fortunately, is on the rise thanks to the research that we've taken out, thanks to uh, our sister agency, the Substance Use and Mental Health Services mm -hmm. Administration, promulgating uh, 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 coordinated special care as an evidence-based care practice for, for the centers that they fund. So it's on the rise, but it's really, really inadequate. Right. right. So if we could address the needs of those with a serious mental illness, we would maximize their potential. I would still assert that's not enough. We're not going to get enough people to full recovery, to full yeah. integration in the community until we come up with really transformative treatments. Right. And, and we're hard at work at that at the NIMH. But, um, but it's a good start. And if, if we could give everyone the treatments if we could now give everyone the treatments that we know work best, mm -hmm. we would make a lot of people's lives a lot better. So, I mean, this is uh, sometimes referred to as the greatest health disparity that nobody is talking about, serious mental illness. So the lack of urgency many times to address um, what are just incredible disparities in access to not only mental health care, which is part of it, and physical health care. So people with serious mental illness die at least 10 years earlier mm -hmm. than people who don't have these conditions, largely for health conditions that are treatable, but they don't get access to the screening, to the treatments. A lot of times providers don't think it's what they're complaining about is real. Um, and because of this lack of integrated care, people don't get that physical health care either. On the mental health side, people can't get access to really good evidence-based care. People want to work, they can't get supported employment services. People want housing, supported housing, it's not there. The evidence-based care is not there on the mental health side. The Post reported of the woman who was discharged from the hospital in a gown, really, after an acute psychiatric episode. And there was outrage. But there should be outrage about the fact that every day, in every area that I know, people are discharged from acute circumstances with no follow-up care. Mm -hmm. You don't do that when someone has hip surgery. You don't do that when they have cardiac care. Why do we keep doing it? when people have serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that lack of coordination is really a tremendous problem for people with serious mental illness and for their families. And as I said, the financing is terrible. There's discriminatory policies that prevent payment for certain inpatient care. There's, um, as Dr. Gordon was saying, there's not enough financing for coordinated specialty care, which we know works. We know it works. We've seen it work. There's a lot of research showing that for young people, they go from, in New York, for example, 40% working to 80% working, 70% having rehospitalizations to 10%. These are huge changes. In any other condition, everybody would have access to that, but we don't. So when you think about it, people with mental illness, and particularly the most serious conditions, we always lag behind. 
we're always at the end of the line. We don't know why we're at the end of the line, because if you look at our numbers, we should be at the front of the line. Mm -hmm. If you look at that disparity that we're dying earlier, we've had the highest readmission rates, we should be at the front of the line, and yet we're always at the back of the line. So you know, we say, if you look at marriage equality, it was love is love. Well, we think care is care, and people with serious mental illness aren't getting much of it, physical or mental. Right. We were before we came out, we were talking about how, you know, since 1971, there's been a war on cancer, there's been a war on drugs, a war on AIDS, a war on Alzheimer's, a moonshot for cancer, um, but nothing for mental illness. Um, you had a great line. Yeah. Well, people always talk about the moonshot and cancer, and I think that's a very accurate portrayal because we've been to the moon and we know something about the moon, and certainly there's more we need to know, but it's something that we've done. In mental illness, we need a Mars shot. We need to go where we haven't gone before because the brain is very difficult and we need newer and better treatments. And so working with NIMH and Dr. Gordon, working with the Stanley Center at Broad, my organization, a lot of academics, um, pharmaceutical industry, we're all getting together to talk about what do we need to do next? How do we get that Mars shot? How do we get public-private partnerships? And I like Dr. Gordon because he's the expert. I'm just the person who knows we need this, but he's going to hopefully uh, get us there. So. <laughs> No, pr hope. no pressure. No, no pressure. pressure. No, no, I think there are a lot of opportunities, and Mary knows this because of the conversations that we've been having over time. There are a lot of opportunities now that we didn't have before. Uh, for example, in schizophrenia, as little as five years ago, we had no known identified uh, bona fide genetic causes. Now we have uh, probably close to 250. Mm. Right? So these are each biological clues. They're not treatment targets just yet. Mm -hmm. We can't design drugs necessarily against those and, and help folks, but they're biological clues now that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And so we hope to be able to use that information to engage with pharmaceutical companies, with uh, academics, to try. It's worth a try. It doesn't take that much. Mm -hmm to see how many of those 250 places in the genome that are associated with schizophrenia, how many of them might lead to new treatments. Um, but it's gonna take you know, concerted effort. Um, right. That's just one example of, I think, the new opportunities that we have in, uh, in neuroscience. There's lots of other causes of schizophrenia besides those sure. genes, right. but these are hard biological clues that are potentially actionable. Um, we have a, a great question from, um, on Twitter, Stephanie. How do we get policymakers and healthcare providers to recognize the role of mental health in chronic diseases like obesity and heart disease? So I think healthcare providers actually do recognize it because they see it, they live with it every day, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily, number one, know what to do about the mental health contributions to these chronic illnesses. And number two, as Mary was saying before, even if they know what to do or know where to send them, access to care is problematic. Right. Right. So over and over again, the data is very, very clear. You integrate mental health into, into traditional physical health settings, and the care gets better, both for mental illness and chronic disease. So that is one way, and direct answer to the question right. is get more providers you know, who have 
the psychiatrist or social worker right next door to their offices. Right, and I mean, integrated healthcare is so important since we now know that about 70% of antidepressants, for instance, are prescribed by primary care doctors, even OBGYNs. So even more reason why we need to, need to have them all in one place. Well, it's a reason why, I know we're going to talk about parity. Parity is so important because people need mental health coverage. If you have a mental health condition or if you have a physical health condition that has mental health implications for you, you need to be able to access the mental health care. And so for decades, we've been fighting for parity, which is equal coverage for mental health care and physical health care. But there are some policies that people are talking about right now, lawsuits that are pending that would get rid of, for example, the pre-existing uh, condition protection. So if you have a pre-existing condition, currently you can still get insurance on the individual market. So if you had that chronic condition or you had a mental health aspect to it, a mental health condition with it, you can still get coverage today. But if that's gone, are you still going to be able to get coverage? We also see people talking about plans that don't have all the coverage that we currently have. So under the Affordable Care Act, we had protections against pre-existing conditions exclusions, and we have uh, essential health benefits. That means mental health and substance use has to be part of the plan. Mm -hmm. And then it has to be covered at parity, meaning equality. Um, so we've been looking at what it was like before these protections existed. So people don't forget, because you know if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. So we recently we released a report today with Georgetown University called Mental Health Parity at Risk. And when we looked back at what it was like back then, let me tell you, it was rampant discrimination. People with mental illness not being able to get um, coverage at all. Mm -hmm. People getting exclusionary policies, which says you can have coverage except for the thing you actually need it for. Um, higher premiums, 20 to 50% higher premiums higher co-pays, I mean, you name it. Difficulty accessing prescription drugs for psychiatric care. That's where we were. And we certainly do not want to return to the days of that kind of discrimination. It's not perfect today, but it's a far cry from what we were experiencing then. And I urge people to check out the report on our website. And let me just point out there's one uh, fact about mental illness which makes the pre-existing condition issue all the more important and that is that mental illness strikes young and it stays with you throughout your lifetime, right? Most mental illnesses occur in late adolescence or early adulthood. Imagine you were diagnosed with depression at age 19. You're gonna have chronic remitting depression very, very likely for most of your adult life. You're going to have that as an active issue that needs management. It doesn't mean you're going to be suffering the whole time. Fortunately, we have good treatments, but you're going to have it as an active issue. That's going to be a pre-existing condition, right? So most other illnesses that afflict the young are acute illnesses that get better, and then you don't have to worry about it again, right? So like diabetes, this psychiatric diseases strike early they stay with you throughout your lifetime. They're gonna affect you in terms of pre-existing conditions for most, if not all, of your life. I wanna ask um, Dr. Gordon a question that you're gonna to have to answer in a minute and nine seconds. Um, and that's about, specifically about ketamine. Uh, ketamine is the sort of, sort of the new Prozac, except the new super Prozac, and has been fast-tracked, may well be approved, uh, the nasal spray by the FDA this year. Um, at the same time, and there are thousands of people already being treated because it's used in anesthesiology, and there are clinics that are run by anesthesiologists giving this nasal spray to depressed people. 
where do you stand on, you know, ketamine as the next, you know, great drug? So it's a, a, a few things to point out about ketamine. Number one, there's really good data, but from small numbers of people, that ketamine, given intravenously, works for what we call treatment-resistant depression, people who've tried at least three antidepressant treatments, be they drugs or psychotherapy, and not responded. In that case, ketamine is probably a good option, at least given intravenously. The data on intranasal ketamine are not, are, are look good, but is not yet FDA approved. So I'd recommend that people hold off until the FDA approval. I want to thank uh, Mary Gilliberti and Dr. Gordon. Uh, we have to end now and uh, for the next panel. So um, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.